Section 40 being Chapter 10, Parts 10 and 11 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 10, Part 10, The Athenian Capture of Pylos. It was probably through the influence of Cleon that Demosthenes, though he received no official command, was sent to accompany the fleet of forty ships which was now ready to start for the west under Eurymedon and Sophocles. We have already seen this fleet at Corcyra assisting the people against the oligarchical exiles who had established themselves on Mount Estoni. Demosthenes accompanied the expedition without any official command. He had a plan in his head for establishing a military post in the western Peloponnesus, and he was allowed to take advantage of the sailing of the fleet and use it according to his discretion. Arriving off the coast of Messenia, Demosthenes asked the commanders to put in at Pylos, but they had heard that the Peloponnesian fleet had already reached Corcyra, and demurred to any delay. But chance favoured the design of Demosthenes. Stress of weather drove them into the harbour of Pylos, and then Demosthenes pressed them to fortify the place. The task was easy, for the place was naturally strong, and there was an abundance of material, stone and timber, at hand. The commanders ridiculed the idea. There are many other desert promontories in the Peloponnesus, they said, if you want to waste the money of the city. But the stormy weather detained the ships, the soldiers were idle, and at length, for the sake of something to do, they adopted the project of Demosthenes, and fell to the work of fortifying Pylos. The features of the scene, which was now to become illustrious by a striking military episode, must be clearly grasped. The high promontory of Pylos, or Corifacion, was on three sides encompassed by water. Once it had been an island, but at this time it was connected with the mainland on the north side by a low sandbar. If we go further back into prehistoric days, Pylos had been part of a continuous line of coast cliff. In this line three rents were made, which admitted the sea behind the cliff and isolated the islands of Pylos and Sphacteria. Accumulation of sand gradually covered the most northern breach and reunited Pylos with the mainland, but the other openings were never filled up, and Sphacteria still remains an island. Originally, Pylos and Sphacteria, when they had been severed, formed the sea-wall of one great landlocked bay, but a curving sandbar has gradually been formed, which now joins the mainland with the southern extremity of Pylos, and secludes a small lagoon, of which Pylos forms the western side. It is impossible to say whether the formation of this sandbar had perceptibly begun in the time of Demosthenes, but in any case it seems probable that it had not advanced so far as to hinder the waters behind Pylos from appearing to be part of a continuous bay. This north corner of the bay, now a marshy lagoon, was sheltered and afforded harbourage for ships. The rest of the bay, the modern bay of Navarino, had no good anchorage, 
but the whole sheet of water, by virtue of the northern corner, was called a harbour. It follows, from what has been said, that there were two entrances into the bay, the narrow water which divides Pylos from Sphacteria, and the wide passage which severs the southern point of Sphacteria from the opposite mainland. We must distinguish yet another smaller bay on the north side of the Pylos hill. The sandbar which there connects Pylos with the mainland is of lunar shape, and forms the little circular basin of Bufras, dominated by the height of Pylos on the south, and a far lower, nameless hill on the north. The length of Pylos is less than a mile. On the seaside it was hard to land, and the harbour side was strongly protected by steep cliffs. Only in three places was it found necessary to build walls. One at the southeast corner, where the cliffs sloped down to the channel for about a hundred yards. Two along the shore on the southwest side, close to the entrance to the bay, for four or five hundred yards. Three, the northern defence of the position consisted of a line of land cliffs, which required no artificial fortification except at the western extremity, where they declined before they reached the sea. Here another wall was built. One of the soldiers present vividly described to Thucydides the manner in which the fortifications were wrought. Being unprovided with iron tools, they brought stones which they picked out, and put them together as they happened to fit. If they required to use mortar, having no hods, they carried it on their backs, which they bent so as to form a resting place for it, clasping their hands behind them so that it might not fall off. In six days the work was finished, and the fleet went on its way, leaving Demosthenes with five ships to hold Pylos. The Lacedaemonian army under Agis had invaded Attica earlier than usual, before the corn was ripe. Want of food, wet weather, and then perhaps the news from Pylos, decided them to return to Sparta after a sojourn of only two weeks within the Attic borders. They did not proceed immediately to Pylos, but another body of Spartans was sent on. Requisitions for help were dispatched to the Peloponnesian allies, and the sixty ships at Corcyra were hastily summoned. These ships succeeded in eluding the notice of the Athenian fleet which had now reached Zacynthus. In the meantime Demosthenes, beset by the Spartan troops, sent two of his ships to overtake the fleet, and beg Eurymedon to return to succour him. The object of the Lacedaemonians was to blockade the hill of Pylos by land and sea, and to prevent Athenian succours from landing. They probably established their camp on the north side of Pylos, so that no ships entering the bay of Bufras could bring help to the fort. They were, moreover, afraid that the Athenians might use the island of Sphacteria as a basis for military operations, and accordingly Epitadas occupied Sphacteria with 420 Spartans, and their attendant helots. It would have been easy to block the narrow entrance to the bay between Pylos and the island, but there was little use in doing so, as the Athenian ships would be able to enter by the ingress at the south of the island, a passage about three-quarters of a mile wide, far too wide to block with so small a fleet. The Lacedaemonians then prepared to attack the place before help could come to the Athenians. Demosthenes posted the greater part of his force to guard the northern line of defence, 
and the south-eastern corner, while he himself, with sixty hoplites and some archers, took his stand on the edge of the south-western shore, which, though rocky and perilous, was the spot where the enemy had the best prospect of effecting a landing. Thrasimelidas was the name of the Spartan admiral. He had forty-three ships, which he brought up in relays, the crews fighting and resting by turns. The great danger was that of running the vessels on reefs. Brasidas, who commanded one of the ships, was the leading spirit. "'Be not sparing of timber,' he cried to those who seemed to draw back from the rocks. "'The enemy has built a fortress in your country. Perish the ships and force a landing.' But in trying to disembark he was wounded and lost his shield. It was washed ashore and set up in the trophy which the Athenians afterwards erected. The Spartan attack, which was renewed on two subsequent days, was repelled. It was a singular turn of fortune, says Thucydides, which drove the Athenians to repel the Lacedaemonians, who were attacking them by sea from the Lacedaemonian coast, and the Lacedaemonians to fight for a landing on their own soil, now hostile to them, in the face of the Athenians. For in those days it was the great glory of the Lacedaemonians to be an inland people, distinguished for their military prowess, and of the Athenians to be a nation of sailors, and the first naval power in Hellas. The fleet from Zacynthus, now augmented to fifty ships by some reinforcements, at length arrived. But finding the shores of the bay of Bufras and the island of Sphacteria occupied, they withdrew for the night to the isle of Proti, which was some miles distant. The next morning they returned, determined to sail into the harbour, if the enemy did not come out to meet them. The Lacedaemonians were preparing their ships for action, evidently intending to fight in the bay. The Athenians, therefore, rowed in by both entrances. Some of the enemy's vessels, which were able to come out to meet them, were captured, and a tremendous struggle ensued close to the shore. The Athenians were tying the empty beach ships to their own and endeavouring to drag them away. The Lacedaemonians dashed into the sea and were pulling them back. The Lacedaemonians knew that if they lost their ships, the party on the island of Sphacteria would be cut off. Most of the empty ships were saved, but the fleet was so far damaged and outnumbered that the Athenians were able to blockade Sphacteria. The interest of the story now passes from Pylos to Sphacteria. The blockade of Demosthenes and his Athenians in Pylos by the Spartans has changed into a blockade of Epitadas and his Spartans in Sphacteria by the Athenians. The tidings of this change in the situation caused grave alarm at Sparta, and some of the efforts came themselves to see what measures could be taken. They decided that nothing could be done for the relief of the island, and obtained from the Athenian generals a truce for the purpose of sending ambassadors to Athens to ask for peace. The terms of this truce were as follows. The Lacedaemonians shall deliver into the hands of the Athenians at Pylos the ships in which they fought, and shall also bring thither and deliver over any other ships of war which are in Laconia, and they shall make no assault upon the fort either by sea or land. The Athenians shall permit the Lacedaemonians on the mainland to send to those on the island a fixed quantity of kneaded flour, viz., two attic quarts of barley meal for each man, and a pint of wine, and also a piece of meat, for an attendant half these quantities. They shall send them into the island under the inspection of the Athenians, and no vessel shall sail in by stealth. 
The Athenians shall guard the island as before, but not land, and shall not attack the Peloponnesian forces by land or sea. If either party violate this agreement in any particular, however slight, the truce is to be at an end. The agreement is to last until the Lacedaemonian ambassadors return from Athens, and the Athenians are to convey them thither, and bring them back in a trireme. When they return, the truce is to be at an end, and the Athenians are to restore the ships in the same condition in which they received them. In accordance with these terms, sixty ships were handed over, and the ambassadors went to Athens. They professed the readiness of Sparta to make peace, and pleaded for generous treatment on the part of Athens. At heart most of the Athenians were probably desirous of peace, but the assembly was under the influence of Cleon, and he, as the opponent of Nicias and the peace party, urged the Athenians to propose terms which could hardly be accepted. It might seem indeed an exceptionally favourable moment to attempt to undo the humiliation of the thirty years' peace, and win back some of the possessions which had been lost twenty years ago. Not only Nicaea and Pagai, the harbours of the Megarid, but Achaea and Troizene were demanded as the purchase of the lives of the Spartans in Sphacteria. The embassy returned to Pylos disappointed, and the truce came to an end. But the Athenians refused to give back the sixty ships, on the pretext of some slight infractions of the truce on the part of the Lacedaemonians. The blockade proved a larger and more difficult matter than the Athenians had hoped. Reinforced by twenty more triremes from Athens, they lay round the island, both in the bay, and except when the wind was too high, on the seaside, and two ships kept continually cruising round in opposite directions. But their vigilance was eluded, and Sphacteria was secretly supplied with provisions. Large sums were offered to any who succeeded in conveying meal, wine, or cheese to the island, and helots, who did such service, were rewarded with freedom. When a strong wind from the west or north drove the Athenian ships into the bay, the daring crews of provision boats beat recklessly into the difficult landing-places on the seaside. Moreover, some skilful divers managed to reach the shores of the island, drawing skins with poppy-seed mixed with honey and pounded linseed. But this device was soon discovered and prevented. And besides the difficulty of rendering the blockade complete in a high wind, the maintenance of it was extremely unpleasant. As there was no proper anchorage, the crews were obliged to take their meals on land by turns, generally in the south part of Sphacteria, which was not occupied by the Spartans. And they depended for their supply of water on one well, which was in the fort of Pylos. The supply of food was deficient, for it had to be conveyed round the Peloponnesus. At home the Athenians were disappointed at the protraction of the siege, and grew impatient. They were sorry that they had declined the overtures of the Lacedaemonians, and there was a reaction of feeling against Cleon. That statesman took the bold course of denying the reports from Pylos, and said, with a pointed allusion to the strategos Nicias, that if the generals were men, they would sail to the island and capture the garrison. If I were commander, he added, I would do it myself. The scene which follows is described in one of the rare passages where the most reserved of all historians condescends to display a little political animosity. Seeing that the people were murmuring at Cleon, Nicias stood up and offered, on the part of his colleagues, 
to give Cleon any force he asked for and let him try. Cleon, says Thucydides, at first imagined that the offer of Nicias was only a pretense and was willing to go, but finding that he was in earnest he tried to back out and said that not he but Nicias was general. He was now alarmed, for he never imagined that Nicias would go so far as to give up his place to him. Again Nicias bade him take the command of the expedition against Pylos, which he formally gave up to him in the presence of the assembly. And the more Cleon declined the proffered command and tried to retract what he had said, so much the more the multitude, as their manner is, urged Nicias to resign and shouted to Cleon that he should sail. At length, not knowing how to escape from his own words, he undertook the expedition, and coming forward said that he was not afraid of the Lacedaemonians, and that he would sail without withdrawing a single man from the city, if he were allowed to have the Lemnian and Imbrian forces now at Athens, the auxiliaries from Ainus, who were targeteers, and four hundred archers from other places. With these, and with the troops already at Pylos, he gave his word that he would either bring the Lacedaemonians alive, or kill them on the spot. His vain words moved the Athenians to laughter. Nevertheless, the wiser sort of men were pleased when they reflected that of two good things they could not fail to obtain one. Either there would be an end of Cleon, which they would have greatly preferred, or, if they were disappointed, he would put the Lacedaemonians into their hands. The story is almost too good to be true. But whether Cleon desired the command, or had it thrust upon him against his will, his words, which moved the Athenians to laughter, were fully approved by the event. He chose Demosthenes as his colleague, and invested with the command by a formal vote of the assembly, he immediately set sail with special light-armed troops. In the meantime Demosthenes, wishing like Cleon to bring matters to an issue, was meditating an attack upon Sphacteria. This desert island is about two miles and three-quarters long. At the northern extremity rises a height higher than the Acropolis of Pylos over against it, and on the east side descending a sheer cliff into the water of the bay. Some of the Spartans had naturally occupied the summit, but the chief encampment of their small force was in the centre of the island, close to the only well, and an outpost was set on a hill further to the south. An assault was difficult, not only because the landing-places on both sides were bad, but because the island was covered with close bush, which gave the Spartans, who knew the ground, a great advantage. Demosthenes had experienced in Aetolia the difficulties of fighting in a wood. But one day, when some Athenians were taking their noonday meal on the south shore of the island, the wood was accidentally kindled, and a wind arising, the greater part of the bush was burnt. It was then possible to see more clearly the position and the numbers of the Lacedaemonians, and when Cleon arrived the plan of attack was matured. Embarking at night all their hoplites in a few ships, Cleon and Demosthenes landed before dawn on the south of the island, partly on the seaside and partly on the harbour side, near the spot where the Lacedaemonians had their outpost. The whole number of troops that landed must have been nearly fourteen thousand, against which the Spartans had only 420 hoplites, and perhaps as many helots. And yet a high military authority described the Athenian enterprise as mad. 
The truth seems to be that it could hardly have succeeded if the Spartan commander had disposed his forces to the best advantage, posting watches at all possible landing places and organizing a proper system of signals. The outpost was at once overpowered, and light-armed troops advanced towards the main Spartan encampment, along a high ridge on the harbour side of the island. Others moved along the low shore on the seaside, so that when the main body of the Spartans saw their outpost cut to pieces, and began to move southward against the Athenian hoplites, they were harassed on either side by the archers and targeteers, whom, encumbered by their arms and in difficult ground, they were unable to pursue. And the attacks of these light-armed troops, as they grew more fully conscious of their own superiority in numbers, and saw that their enemy was growing weary, became more formidable. Clouds of dust arose from the newly burnt wood, so Thucydides reports the scene from the vivid description of an eyewitness, and there was no possibility of a man seeing what was before him, owing to the showers of arrows and stones hurled by their assailants which were flying amid the dust. And now the Lacedaemonians began to be sorely distressed, for their felt cuirasses did not protect them against the arrows, and the points of the javelins broke off where they struck them. They were at their wit's end, not being able to see out of their eyes or to hear the word of command, which was drowned by the cries of the enemy. Destruction was staring them in the face, and they had no means or hope of deliverance. At length it was determined that the only chance lay in retreating to the high hill at the north of the island. About a mile had to be traversed to the foot of the hill, but the ground was very difficult. The endurance and discipline of the Spartan soldiers was conspicuously displayed in this slow retreat, which was accomplished with but a small loss, under a burning sun, by men who were suffering from thirst and weary with the distress of an unequal battle. When they had reached and climbed the hill, the battle assumed another aspect. On the high ground, no longer exposed to their flanks, and finding a defence in an old Cyclopean wall, which can still be traced round the summit, the Lacedaemonians were able to repel their assailants, and they were determined not to surrender. At length the Messenian captain came to the Athenian generals, and said that he knew a path by which he thought he could take some light-armed troops round to the rear of the Spartans. The hill on its eastern side falls precipitously into the bay, but the fall is not direct. The summit slopes down into a hollow about fifty yards wide, and then the hill rises again into the cliff, which falls sheer into the water. But at the south end of the cliff there is a narrow gorge by which it is possible to climb up into the hollow. Embarking in a boat on the eastern side of the island, the Messenians reached the foot of the gorge and climbed up with difficulty, unseen by the Spartans, who neglected what seemed an impracticable part of the hill, and then ascending the summit suddenly appeared above the Lacedaemonians, who were ranged in a semicircle below on the western and northern slopes. The Athenians now invited the defenders to capitulate, and with the consent of their friends on the mainland, they laid down their arms. Two hundred and ninety-two of the four hundred and twenty survived, and were brought to Athens. The high opinion which the Greek world held of the Spartan spirit was expressed in the universal amazement which was caused by this surrender. Men had thought that nothing could induce the Lacedaemonians to give up their arms. Cleon had performed his promise. He brought back the captives within twenty days. 
the success was of political rather than military importance. The Athenians could indeed ravage Lacedaemonian territory from Pylos, but it was a greater thing that they had in the prisoners a security against future invasions of Attica, and a means of making an advantageous peace when they chose. It was the most important success gained in the war, and it was a brilliant example of the valuable successes that can be gained, as it were accidentally, in following that system of strategy which Pericles had laid down at the beginning of the war. This stroke of luck increased the influence of Cleon. It was necessary for Nicias to do something to maintain his reputation. Shortly afterwards he led an army into the Corinthian territory, gained a partial victory at Soligia, and then went on to the peninsula of Methoni, between Troisene and Epidaurus. He built a wall across the isthmus, and left a garrison in Methoni. In the following year he made the more important acquisition of the island of Cythera, from which he was able to make descents upon Laconia. The loss of Cythera was in itself more serious for Sparta than the loss of Pylos, but owing to the attendant circumstances, the earlier event made far greater stir. The Athenians had now three bases of operation in the Peloponnesus, Pylos, Cythera, and Methoni. To none was the discomfort of the Spartans in Messenia sweeter than to the Messenian exiles who had borne their part in the work of that memorable day. At Olympia there is a figure of victory, hovering aloft in the air amid wind-blown drapery, while an eagle flies below her. It is the work of the sculptor Paeonius, and it was dedicated by the Messenians in the Altis of Zeus, with part of the spoil they stripped from the hated usurpers of their land. Section 11. Athenian Capture of Nisaea in each of the first seven years of the war Attica was invaded, except twice. On one occasion the attack on Plataea had taken the place of the incursion into Attica, and on another the Peloponnesian army was hindered by earthquakes from advancing beyond the Isthmus. Every year, by way of reply, the Athenians invaded the Megarid twice, in spring and in autumn. The capture of Pylos affected both these annual events. The invasion of Attica was discontinued, because Athens held the Spartan hostages, and the elation of the Athenians at their success induced them to undertake a bolder enterprise against Megara. Minoa, now a hill on the mainland, but then an island, lay at the entrance to the harbour of Nisaea. It was separated from Nisaea by a narrow channel, protected by two projecting towers. Nicias had destroyed these towers three years before, and had fortified Minoa, so as to blockade completely the port of Nisaea. The Megarians then depended entirely on the port of Pagai, and their communications with the Crissian Gulf. They were hard-pressed, their distress was vividly portrayed in the comedy of the Acarnians, which was put on the stage two years later. The situation became almost intolerable when a domestic sedition led to the expulsion of a small party who seized Pagai and cut off Megara from importing food on that side too. It became a question between allowing the exiles to return or submitting to Athens. Those who knew that the return of their rivals from Pagai would mean their own doom opened secret negotiations with Athens and offered to betray Megara and Nisaea. The Long Walls and Nisaea were held by a Peloponnesian garrison. 
the generals Hippocrates and Demosthenes organized the enterprise. While a force of four thousand hoplites and six hundred horse marched overland by Eleusis, the generals sailed to Minoa. When night fell, they crossed to the mainland. There was a gate in the eastern wall close to the spot where it joined the fortification of Nisaea, and near the gate there was a hollow out of which earth to make bricks had been dug. Here Hippocrates and six hundred hoplites concealed themselves, while Demosthenes, with some light-armed Plataeans, and a band of the youthful Peripoloi, or patrollers, of Attica, took up a position still nearer the gate, in the sacred enclosure of the war-god Enualios. The conspirators had long matured their plan for admitting the Athenians. As no boat could openly leave the harbour, owing to the occupation of Minoa, they had easily obtained permission of the commander of the Peloponnesian garrison to carry out through this gate a small boat on a cart at night, for the alleged purpose of privateering. They used to convey the boat to the sea along the ditch which surrounded Nisaea, and after a midnight row, return before dawn, and re-enter the long walls by the same gate. This became a regular practice, so that they carried out the boat without exciting any suspicion on the night fixed for executing the conspiracy. When the boat returned, the gate was opened, and Demosthenes, who had been watching for the moment, leapt forward and forced his way in, assisted by the Megarians. They kept the gate open till Hippocrates arrived with his hoplites, and when these were inside, the long walls were easily secured, the garrison retreating into Nisaea. In the morning the main body of the Athenians arrived. A scheme for the betrayal of Megara had been concerted. The conspirators urged their fellow-citizens to sally forth and do battle with the Athenians. They had secretly arranged that the Athenians should rush in, and had anointed themselves with oil as a mark by which they should be known and spared in the assault. But their political opponents, informed of the scheme, immediately rushed to the gates, and declared decisively that they should not be opened. The battle would have to be first fought inside. The delay apprised the Athenians that their friends had been baffled, and they set about blockading Nisaea. Their energy was such that in two days the circumvallation was practically completed, and the garrison, in want of food, for their supplies were derived from Megara, capitulated. Thus the long walls which they had built themselves, and the port of Nisaea, had passed again into the hands of the Athenians. They were not, however, destined to take the city on the hill. The Spartan general Brasidas, who was recruiting in the northeast regions of the Peloponnesus for an expedition to Thrace, hastened to the relief of Megara, and was joined by forces from Corinth and Boeotia, to whom the defence of Megara was vital. An indecisive skirmish took place. The Athenians did not care to risk a battle, and they resolved to be content with the acquisition of Nisaea. Soon afterwards there was a revolution in Megara. The exiles from Pagai were received back. They soon got the power into their hands and murdered their enemies. A narrow oligarchical constitution was established. The new order of things, says Thucydides, lasted a very long time, considering the small number of its authors. End of part 11